0: The economist in me said, is there something called optimal hypocrisy?
1: Welcome to Unintended Consequences, a quarterly podcast about what can go wrong when the government tries to regulate. I'm Paul Matsko, historian and research fellow at the Cato Institute, and I'm joined as always by Peter Van Doren, the editor of Regulation Magazine. Our conversation today ranges widely, but the core question behind our discussion is this, How rigorously should we enforce our laws, rules, and norms? Is there such a thing as optimal regulatory hypocrisy? Let's begin with something that most of us take for granted. Water. A couple of recent working papers in Regulation magazine have focused on the surprisingly thorny issues related to water policy for making sure that we have enough drinking water in arid states to mitigate the damage caused when there's too much water that floods our homes. It sometimes feels like a case of water, water everywhere, but not a drop to drink. So I'm of the opinion that water management, you know, at every level from drinking water, river management, flood risk, might just be the most underrated area of broad government mismanagement, local, state, federal, uh, over the last century. And I don't know if ordinary folks spend a lot of time thinking about the failures of water policy. Uh, but we've got two working papers related to water to discuss today, one on flood insurance and one on water markets. And, and Peter, I think you said you've been working on a, uh, book with Ryan Bourne, uh, about water management. Uh, maybe you can explain the state of water management policy in the last couple of years.
0: Well, what's going on is, uh, a lot of people have moved to the West and they are leaving the East and the West doesn't have much water (laughs) and Phoenix, right. Is growing and Las Vegas are growing tremendously, right? Large, large population growth, uh, in the, in the 2010 to 2020 era. And just as we speak, Arizona has a groundwater management system and they require housing developments. Outside of cities, because cities in Arizona have rights to the water from the aqueduct that gets the water from the Colorado River, but outside of those cities, uh, developments have to have a hundred-year groundwater or water supply management plans. Otherwise, the housing development is not allowed. Well, uh, Maricopa County, the county that surrounds Phoenix, has New York Times announced recently that. Um, Maricopa County has realized that the 100-year requirement, now certain planned developments are not able to fulfill that requirement given what they submitted. Well, you'd think, I mean, the way that the news reported it is they're running out tomorrow. Well, there's still 80 or 100,000 homes being planned that are already approved. But the at the margin, uh, the Times reported that they're gonna be four percent short a hundred years from now, right? Okay, so there's so we're not ready to jump off the cliff. But the issue of where does water come from? How is it priced? Are there property rights to it? Um, all of that, all of that econ 101 thing. And are the problems with water, do they arise because people think of water as free, right? Or something that just is provided and shouldn't have charges for it, and uh, blah, 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 blah. So not only water I want to talk about, but I want to talk about what libertarians think about enforcement. In other words, we talk about policies and passing policies, and then what do we think of the rule of law? Does the rule of law require 100% enforcement, 50% enforcement, uh, benign neglect, to use an old term? Uh, So... The first working paper is about an experiment in Fresno, California. So Fresno, California has uh, outdoor water restrictions. It's in the West. And it says, you can only water your lawn at blah times or blah times a week or things like that. But they only had five enforcement officers. So I, in my cutesy little writing style in the new issue of regulation, I talk about optimal enforcement or non-enforcement or optimal hypocrisy. So Fresno has on the books this thing that says, don't use a lot of water in the summer, because we don't have enough, because we're in California. Turns out everyone violated this, right? So they then put in automated, computer-readable water meters. okay, And they created an automatic enforcement program And they had an experiment, and they assigned some people to this, and they assigned some to not. And, well, basically, under the old system, only 0.4% of violators were sanctioned. They concluded, all right? And under the new system, they sent out a lot of citations, and all hell broke loose. (laughs) So I talked about a, a thing related, which is speed limits on Interstate highway. So, in two, uh, Interstate 270, where I live in suburban Maryland, uh, the posted speed limit is 55 miles an hour. Well, if you go 55, I s- stated in my review, uh, you'll be rear-ended, and people will flash lights at you, and the police might even pull you over, right? Because every per, certainly during the pandemic, speeds went up, and my goodness, people go.
1: And there's been an uptick in fatal crashes because of excessive speeds. People kind of learned to go faster than they should during the pandemic. Yeah, yeah.
0: And now traffic is rising again,
1: and lots of metal cans are bumping into each other. (laughs) Yeah. But if you try to enforce the speed limits by a more efficient enforcement mechanism, speed cameras, uh, I assume people don't like that much either.
0: Oh, they hate? No, I mean, (laughs) right? And so anyway, Fresno did this, and... The S hit the fan, and the the city council repealed. It said no fine shall be administered based on water meter readings, and it's like, what? So I talk about optimal hypocrisy and whether or not we should think about. It. In other words, if politics is a ventilation device where activists get stuff, and libertarians might be opposed to lots of the stuff they get, although I don't think speed limits would fall in that category. But is having something on the books and not enforcing it very much, I think of that as it's a positive political equilibrium. That is, I could find lots of examples of said stuff all over the place. And is that, what do we think of that?
1: Because you can make a libertarian argument on either side, right? Ultimately, where on the one hand, one of the issues with water we're talking about is the government prices water below the market rate. It subsidizes it in a variety of ways. It subsidizes it for I know, almond farmers in California. And so they pay submarket rates for, for these water-intensive crops. And that's a problem. So, like on the one hand, you can make a libertarian argument based on market thinking that we need a functioning market for water that properly prices water. Mm-hmm. And in the absence of a real functioning market, we have the government saying use less, which is a lot less effective than the market. If you just price the water, you know, more uh, accurately, but on you know people dodging prices, they want water to be as cheap as possible, cheaper than the market, cheaper than the government's trying to make it for them. There is something kind of counter-libertarian in in, in that regard. On the flip side, you know, uh, defying government uh, minders, you know, uh, uh, the meter maids coming around and. And right. reading, there, there's also kind of a small l libertarian like stick it to the man. You know, you use the phrase benign neglect, and, and one of the classic dangers of benign neglect. I mean, in, in, at least in among historians, we use that term to refer to British trade policy in the 18th century. That the British had all these trade restrictions that you know goods had to be transshipped through. You know that that raised the costs of goods for American consumers in the colonies in the in the you know in 1700s. And that they but they mostly didn't enforce them during a big span in the middle of the 18th century. And so Americans got used to not abiding by these rules. And so when they finally tried to follow the actual law, I mean these were legitimate laws passed by parliament that they just didn't enforce, they actually started trying to enforce them, they get a revolution. And there's a moral to the story there, like we have in the very small scale revolutions in these, you know, because they they're used to not having to pay real prices for water they're used to not having to abide by speeding restrictions. But I think would you agree that real
0: world political systems have a lot of let's call it enforcement hypocrisy and therefore the economist in me said is there something called optimal hypocrisy and but a libertarian view might be that it, it's zero for a while it works but then oh boy revel- you use the word rev i mean
1: again it's kind of a you know we have a debate here between what kind of libertarian one is right there is a i call it vulgar libertarian vulgar libertarianism which is just the government should leave me alone let me do what i want to do um and it should prevent other people from telling me that i can't do what i want to do and, I'm, and that's fine, it's, and it's actually fine for the government to tell other people not to do things that I don't like. It's just leave oh, me and right. mine alone. Right. right? You can bother they and them. In fact, I wouldn't mind if you did, because I in don't fact, like-
0: political parties are organized to bother
1: people you don't like. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> right? So there's kind of a vulgar libertarianism that I think is a commonality in, in, across the ideological spectrum in, the, in, the, in American uh, politics, whether people would describe themselves that way or not. I think a lot of our water systems are very underrated. To the extent to which all of our municipal infrastructure was actually often built by private capital? Like here in the Trenton area, uh, Trenton Waterworks started with you know uh, business interests pooled together capital and built the Trenton Waterworks. It was later municipalized and it's being run into the ground over the last half century. By the government authority you know in charge of it
0: there is a story for our listeners we should tell which is the epa all the grants to local uh, folks for water improvements at some point in the 70s i i don't know off the top of my head but at some point you couldn't get federal money unless you were you couldn't be private so the so we had lots of private water systems and the conversion of them to the water agencies that we now know um, and deal with is, was, was not an accident or it was a product of, of well, people like federal money and, and the willingness to not have federal money um, is slim. It's like an education, right? There's, I mean, there's certain colleges that do not accept any federal financial aid for their students or federal grants for them. That allows them to not be governed by any of the affirmative action or other kind of federal rules. For, so, same thing with with water.
1: Well, and then once it's municipalized, once it's you know becomes a government run utility, there's political pressure not to raise rates to reflect the actual costs of running that Correct. water system Correct. or sewer system or whatever. Yes, um, and by proper and often that means you know they're only. And and maybe there'll be enough to cover operating costs, but they're not amortizing future capital or infrastructure replacement. And uh and so then eventually a big bill comes due generations of politicians later. That's what's happening all across the country. Yes. Because right our now. systems are because half a century ago we did this. There are a hundred,
0: yeah, as New York, as you said, was a hundred and some odd years old. And we're heading this happening where I live, the Washington Suburban Sanitary Commission, WSSC. Um, There was a big water main on River Road that blew up oh six years, five years ago. It was a sixty inch or something, and forty eight. I mean, right, huge. Road fell apart, no water, and then everyone. It finally came out that the the water agency was replacing water mains on a three hundred year schedule. The depreciation was a bit in the slow lane rather than the fast lane. Well, anyway, they have raised rates. Ten percent, right? In real terms, my water bill's gone up a lot, and it's it's everyone's griping. And it's not about the water; it's about the inf- the fixed costs of replacing these things
1: on a timely basis so that they don't fall apart. And if it was a private entity, they you know they usually are better at accounting for those future expenses in their you know in their account keeping and um yes because they uh, have
0: shareholders no- and.
1: There's yeah. profits and
0: yeah yeah
1: right yeah so that's one of the it's a, it is a feature not a bug in government run uh, utility systems including water so we should when possible privatize these systems of course usually what happens when you do so when you privatize a water system is that they then are the they're doing it because they're the the local government is desperate and so you're turning over you're turning it private at exactly the moment when they need to start raising rates. And and so then, people blame the privatization yes, for correct. greedy, greedflation, greedy capitalists are coming along and, and uh, you know, exploiting taxpayers. So the reality is, is they're cleaning up the mess left by government mismanagement. Um, but we also live in the real world, which is that not all water systems are going to be privatized. So in these government-run water systems where water has not been accurately priced for decades, there is no functioning, there's a very poorly functioning water market what do you do in those suboptimal situations?
0: But you're right for the Fresno. I mean, you were right to point out that the Greenstone paper talks about how automated enforcement fell apart. What the article does not talk about is um, it, that water wasn't priced. I mean, why was use so high? And the answer is because the water wasn't priced correctly. And in fact, there's evidence, well, even though they had meters, there weren't prices at all. Um, it it was just a, a, a embedded in the municipal budget
1: um i worked for a uh, local water and sewer authority for a summer mm. after college and um which was quite an experience for like a 22 year old you know to um no one ever calls the water authority cuz they're happy with things <laughs> no one said i yeah. hey uh mr Matsko, i i just want to let you know my water's really good sweet and tastes great today thank you guys so much for what you do that was always you know but one of the things you realize is working behind the scenes is how even relatively functioning water systems, how the whole game is, is kind of rigged um, in in ways that violate a simple market. Like imagine if the prices you paid for anything was just based on your political influence. So in our water system, if you were the, – the more water you used, um, it didn't just become cheaper. And you'd expect, I don't know, a bulk discount of some kind – It became exponentially cheaper. So the people who paid the most were the people who used the least, but by an exponential factor. So if you're a little residential home, your rate was very high. Uh, If you were a big business, uh, you know, a, a factory using lots of water for your industrial process, you paid, I mean, not quite 100x, but 10x less uh, if you're a big user. And I know this in California, the same kind of thing with farms. The, the farms, you know, they have these water-intensive agricultural crops and they pay pennies on the dollar compared to residential users, which is because they have a lot of heft. You know, California politics going back to the early Sunbelt days, agricultural interests have a lot of pull in the state capitol.
0: In fact, the the Bureau of Water Reclamation, well, I mean, I can talk a bit about the the chapter I wrote for Ryan Bourne. Uh, with, with, well, basically... There's actually a common law origin of farmers' rights where they were the first to divert from the rivers, and, and they developed
1: yeah, first dibs.
0: aqueduct yep. systems. So it's, not, it's analogous to uh, the way property rights for land were created. But the, So the property rights for river diversion under U.S. common law were based on, I'm here first, and I diverted it for a beneficial use, and I get to do that. So then the, Bureau of, the Federal Bureau of Water Reclamation comes along and subsidizes and builds a whole lot more of that stuff out there. So that's why we, so farmers have access to and use a lot of water and all they pay for is literally some sort of federal interest rate on the div capital structures that are allegedly paid, or paid for for their use, the dams and the, and the aqueducts. There's nothing in principle, though, that prevents, in fact, that's the issue that now in the West is, um, farmers are often to blame in the press. And you just gave a a great uh, layperson's understanding of said problem, which is we subsidize them and that's not right. Technically, though, from an economist's point of view, the fact that they have initial property rights isn't the problem. It's that if we allow them to get rich from trading those rights to urban users that solves the problem but it's also culturally difficult to do and i um, the history of it, diverting water to la and to phoenix is about said conflicts because the farmers get rich from selling the thing that that many think they shouldn't Have been entitled to in the first place, if you the subsidized system, to an economist that's just sunk. That's just there. It's there. Here's how we deal with it: create rights to the water and then allow them to be traded. And water's priced per acre foot. Do you know we have to? So that's, uh, and it's I forget how many hundreds of thousands of of gallons. Yeah, it's it's a it's an acre of land with a foot of water depth. That's an acre foot. So farmers pay, I don't know, in the 30s. And then if you sell it to San Diego, it's in the thousands, right? The San Diego water system is paying farmers in the Central Valley 10 times, 100 times more. So farmers get rich from the fact that we subsidize them. To an economist, it's like, oh, all right, get a-. I mean, we just got to do that. It's It's in the past. Forget
1: about it. But Culturally, that it's uncouth. It's not how we should do things. It's well, you know, it it, it, it to use the, the the you know political equilibrium. If the point of politics is to ventilate disagreements between communities, well, that the old system makes a certain degree of sense when you know uh, up until the mid nineteenth century, what ninety percent of Americans are engaged in agricultural related mm-hmm. enterprises, and so a so system was that no benefits ninety S- percent. And you it know, wasn't but today, us and them, there was just us, just us, all <laughs> farmers. We're 90% of right. us are basically farmers, but today it's what you know, 2% or something crazy, or actually, you know, so, um, the, the political equilibrium hasn't updated, or it, it has updated, but not the system that you know, based on the old political equilibrium is still there.
0: The solution to water problems in the West and the Colorado and too many people having rights relative to the current flows um, eventually we'll trade all these rights and price them and but it's a slog because of the distributional concerns over who gets the gains from the trades and then and then two um, separately we have to developing underground water property rights systems is, more difficult than surface. Because For the
1: aquifers and yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: You have to have a central manager. You have what's called a unitization, right? Because too many straws in the drink problem. And so you have to actually have a hydrologist do studies and figure out, well, given the rainfall rate and given the recharge rate of the aquifer, what's the sustainable water use that can occur from this thing uh, without... Negative effects. In fact, depleting it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you deplete it too fast, you not only run out of water, but the land sinks. <laughs> New York. So there's yeah. a town in, Cal, in the central in California that has sunk 11 feet. Oh, wow. In um, <laughs> okay. the time, the New York Times had a story earlier this year on it. It symbolizes for them the the Climate water change problem. or something. Probably yes. Yeah. But yeah. anyway, the um, getting farmers to then agreed to a, a master of an aquifer who then allocates water rights. Uh, one of the working papers in the next issue is on that, how that worked out in Idaho. And Idaho is a very conservative state. It's a very market-oriented state. And yet it took 27 years to- This is
1: the Brown and G uh, economic value of clarifying property rights from Correct. Idaho's Snake River Basin. Okay. Correct. Okay. Yep.
0: And again, to the, the, what the listeners should understand is Yes, in theory, it's, quote, easy to say prices, we ought to have prices in markets. But the actual practice of developing property rights that are exchangeable for underground water sources is incredibly difficult. It's not a, you, you can't just assign the right to drill based on surface property rights because everyone affects everyone else because there's just one underground source of water and the surface property rights. Are don't equal the surface area of the reservoir. So in Idaho, anyway, it took 27 years and 90 some odd million dollars of a statewide judicial adjudication effort. And it's great. I mean, it, the paper, it costs $94 million and now Idaho agriculture has $250 million per year in benefits, but it took 27 years. All right, So they, <laughs> yeah. the normal Cato... Listener who says, "Oh, they just should listen to us and prices and markets and it all work out." In the water area, the both in the surface development, uh, the development of the tradable rights, and then underground developing of rights and then trading them, is what we call transaction cost filled. It is it it is not. It it's well. It's just difficult. So. We are going to have a tough slog going forward in imagine non market oriented, right? Like California, Arizona's market oriented, so it may be um, easier than, but if it takes as long as Idaho, remember, Idaho doesn't have many people, doesn't have many cities, and this was just conflicts among farmers over the water rights. And so, so,
1: so what are they spending the money on? Like the 94 million, so you have you literally have creating a-, a
0: title to creating something analogous to. A a land title system, rather than just
1: I've always extracted water from my fields, being like that. You have a right to X amount of gallons each year, and that you have a quantifiable legal you know document that states that kind of thing, or adjudicatable. Okay,
0: correct. Like, right? How do we know who owns what land
1: and have housing and land markets? Piece of paper in a you know government office that your deed, right?
0: And that happened. So long ago, no, none of us know about it. Well, for water, we're doing that now, and it turns out it is um, well. The, read the working pay, my my review of this working paper of Idaho is stunning in the numbers involved, and it's a small rural state where there's fairly homogeneous political beliefs, and yet still it took, took
1: 27 twenty seven years and ninety four million dollars,
0: seven years to now do that
1: for Los Angeles County, right? Or oh,
0: yeah, so. Stay tuned. The world is shifting in our direction, but it's not as easy as implementing some of our other views
1: in markets that aren't priced very well. Well, my understanding is the paper said it works. It's a hundred and forty percent increase in optimal use. I mean, all the good me- metrics went up. I'm not sure the water seemed better allocated. And
0: exactly, this is this is worth it. it it's not. There's no mischief here. It's just the econ 101 sort of view of oh come on guys there's just property rights and markets and prices and, and it'll all work well the actual as you said the infrastructure of creating water underground water property rights um, is difficult even if everyone agrees it should occur
1: it's interesting I, I you know I, I come from a strain like my approach to libertarianism is very historically grounded which it rather than theoretical and um and and there's value in a the theoretical approach, value in the economics approach, value in the historical approach. But I'm always struck by the ways in which you have to remember, like, when you think about these struggles, these debates as historical matters, in a place and time, this had to be evolved in a messy, real-world way. It wasn't just someone said, oh, fee simple property. That's a thing now. Everyone has, you know, absolute right to their own domain, right? That like that, that had to be evolved through a process of struggle and politics over centuries ultimately in the, Well, in the, the transition
0: ages. from feudalism to said system
1: it wasn't <laughs> right and like we t- kind of take it for granted that we have good ideas and we do right but like you actually have to it's a process to get those ideas to to happen in a historical way. And so like I'm you know I'm thinking here of you know uh it's one thing you know we, we might be familiar with the tragedy of the commons, you know, Garrett Hardin's idea that you get suboptimal Usage of a resource because you know, underground you have, underground water, it's hard. It's <laughs> not, I mean, it's not even easy to enclose a literal commons that he's thinking of the village commons in the middle right. of town where you're grazing your sheep on. That was a hard process, lots of resistance and struggle and you know, time. Um, but you could do it, you could put fences. We talk about enclosure is not just a metaphor, it's literal, right? You, you fence it off. Um, how do you fence off an aquifer, right? It's a, I mean. It's it's a really hard thing to do. You turn over. See, here's
0: oddly. There's this a very big scientific component. You turn over the management of said thing to a hydrologist, to well, to an a hydrology agency, where everyone then has to agree to what the scientists say about the recharge rate of this underground water system, i.e there's this much rainfall and the rivers leak this, not leak, that's not the right word, you know, that river flow, if you, diver, in the Idaho, there was the Snake River. It turns out diversion of the river by agricultural interest slows down the recharge rate of the underground aquifer in Idaho as well, which I did not, I did not know that surface river systems are related to the recharge rate of underground water systems. So, So literally, smart people have to figure out what this underground pool is like, and how much of it you can use a year to keep it sustainable. Then you have to divvy up that amount amongst hundreds of thousands of users. And then you have to take into account their historical quote, well, I was sort of doing this, and if you take away a lot of what I was doing, I'm going to fight, right? Do you see what I, right? and and that took Idaho 27 years and hundreds of thousands of cases before judges who were then informed by this scientific hydrology entity that Idaho allows to manage its uh, its underground water system. So you and I agree that within our Cato community, you and I are more on the empirical, I'm empirical and you're historical rather than theory. And so the notion that Ayn Rand said X, and therefore, if everyone read Ayn Rand, it would sort of just work out. Well, the the details (laughs) take 27 years. (laughs) So it it turns out it's, um, and that's different from supermarkets or whatever for food. But as you said, what you and I don't realize is how, what a slog it was to develop the systems of land title. Because we now just take it for granted that there's this thing we get from the from the you know the county when you borrow your, rent your house that says somebody owns it and and then a surveyor is surveyed it surveying right all of that George Washington and-
1: well so there, we have another paper here um, this is the F- efficient adaptation to flood risk by Hofkamp and Wagner. Um, about flood insurance, so we're kind of on the other side. So we've been talking about too little water. Now we could talk about managing what happens when there's too much water. So my general understanding, as a you know non-expert, is that uh, for a long time the federal government runs the flood insurance system poorly. Hurricane insurance system uh, realized it's eventually started to realize it's insuring too many houses that get repeatedly flooded. Um, and rebuild because they're on a floodplain they shouldn't probably build a house there and it gets destroyed they rebuild it destroyed rebuild it and it's all kind of subsidized by the taxpayer um which is nuts uh, so the feds try to stem the bleeding they come up with new rules to prevent repeat offenders you know they try to minimize how often they're having to rebuild houses in floodplains and my understanding that's the background for this paper do I do I have that right
0: Yes, a little. I'll just amend a little amendment, which is the giveaway part. Congress tried to, given Congress knows itself, and Congress knows that it has difficulty saying no to voters. But members have to be reelected. So believe it or not, Congress tries now and then to have what game theory people like me would call commitment devices. One is the Constitution of the United States, that's a big commitment device. But in flood insurance, from the beginning, when the program was designed in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, there was a provision in the law that said uh, if the uh, rebuilding cost, if the damage, sorry, if the damage to a structure ex- equals or exceeds 50% of the market value of the structure, the structure has to be elevated above the hundred year floodplain in order to be, to receive payments from the flood insurance program. So, and in fact, the Congress was naive, but it believed that this provision, this commitment to you have to elevate if you receive payments, would eventually allow the flood insurance program payment system to go away. There would be no, right? If we start out with flooding and low structures, and then all new structures- They're
1: all above that level. And and all
0: rebuilt structures have to be elevated, then the flood insurance problem goes away. Okay? So it was a commitment device.
1: It's reasonable in theory. How'd it work in practice?
0: Well, (laughs) it's hard. It's hard staying committed to the commitment device, right? This is game theory within game theory. There's just commitment from there on down. And when big stuff happened, uh, Congress then throws money at stuff. And it's hard to, i.e. Um, Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. Uh, we threw $14 billion at a place that did not have $14 billion worth of flood insurance. So the origins were the, um, it was a commitment device, but it it, it is, and Congress is, really tried now and then to crack down. Uh, one was, uh, what was the hurricane uh, that hit New York in 2012? Oh, that Sandy? was
1: Camilla. Sandy, 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 Sandy.
0: So flood insurance reform occurred before that and then Hurricane Sandy hit and then that led to a reluctance of the New York and the New Jersey delegations to follow through with said elevation requirements. Uh, and anyway, we're still wrestling with exceptions to all that but the hovenkamp paper uh, is is a um a very narrow but important question which is has anyone explored the the economics of the cost effectiveness of the elevation requirement and what they did is a nice research design and they use the randomness of the timing of the flood plans in florida uh And some places were covered and some places weren't. And then you study, were the rebuilding costs less once structures had been elevated? And was the elevation cost less than the present value of the benefits from being elevated? Right? A classic cost-benefit question. And the answer for new structures was yes. Right? Structures that were elevated and then had flood insurance claims the claims were were not much; they were small, and so the cost of the elevation was worth it. Then they examine how about for the existing structures, right, old structures, and then making them elevated. Turns out that's expensive. So that cost forty or fifty thousand dollars a structure, and only yielded like nine or eight thousand dollars in benefits, something like that. And so that was instructive to me because I wrote a paper for Cato a year, year and a half ago on. What should we do about this mandate to raise structures once they pull a permit that equals half the market value of the structure? Right, old structures in flood zones. Is it cost effective to elevate them? And the answer from this paper was no. It is not. So, wow. So that's a, that. It, it. So should you abandon the structure? What should you do? Should we buy them out, and make them leave? But, but elevation. Um, is not It costs more than the damages that it prevents for existing structures because the elevation cost is so high.
1: Our next discussion topic is a little more abstract. The federal government employs many hundreds of economists who are expected to help policymakers understand the economic consequences of proposed laws and new regulations. The question that Stuart Shapiro has asked in the latest issue of regulation is whether economists should be neutral actors in policy discussions rather than advocates. That question is complicated by the simple fact that there are different competing definitions of what neutrality even is in the first place. So I'll put the question to you, Peter. What does it mean to you that a bureaucrat, in this case an economist, should be neutral?
0: Well, this is the deep intellectual question of what is policy analysis? I mean, is it scientific? And what what's the difference between positive science? I mean, what, what is science? What is expertise? And we could use the, 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 the term just follow the science was used during the pandemic. You could substitute... Just follow the economists, right? And this notion of neutrality. Um, The agency that epitomizes this most, and Shapiro interviewed people in it, is the Congressional Budget Office, the CBO. And listeners probably every time a bill occurs, or the CBO quote scores a bill, right? It scores uh, congressional decisions on on regulation and on budgets, on spending. And scoring a bill means using a computer model to estimate the effects of spending and taxation on, fill in the blanks, behavior out there in the economy. And this, at its core, is what positive economics is about rather than normative, right? That that if we understand the relationship between prices and behavior, and we understand the relationship between tax rates and willingness to pay taxes, and we understand, right, we have these, what are called the values of fundamental parameters, right? It's a fancy econ word for if if prices do this and revenues do this and then what follows in a market. If we actually know all that stuff, then, if you plug in the 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 what a bill would do, if you put it, all the ifs into a computer model, and then it spits out the thens, right? The, the if this and if that, then GDP will be X and revenues will be Y and something called net benefits to the economy will be blah. So that's what Shapiro means by neutrality, which is. I have models of the economy, and I'm trained in them. And we think we know how markets work. And and we have both micro and macro models about the money supply and this and that and the other thing. And then what happens if we do this to taxes or interest rates and the following. And then boom, out comes
1: our 10-year prediction of the answer, right? That's CBO scores the bill. But interested parties will always assume the best case scenario and exaggerate to match because it's politically useful to do so. So I guess the question then is, so if you're the CBO neutrality, what does that mean? Does it mean using the Republican preferred uh, inflection point for laugh or does it mean using the gets messy? Shapiro argues that when he interviews these
0: folks in CBO and the other in OMB and the Economic Research Service of the Department of Agriculture Um, and the GAO, right? He has four agencies where nerds hang out. And he argues they have an ethos of scientism and neutrality. And the unpleasant details that we are now (laughs) describing are are not part of that, are not part of the view. In other words, the The underlying intellectual disputes within economics, which are real, are not part of the perspective of scientific neutrality uh, for, for outward purposes. In other words, when an agency says, we've done this, we've investigated everything clearly, and we've talked to lots of people, and we've concluded this bill does the following. The fact that in a graduate seminar, the professor would admit, well, economics and models, computer models, are assumption dependent, and if our parameters and our assumptions are incorrect, then the output, the the layman's view of this is garbage in, garbage out, right, for a, a negative portrayal of models, that messy, real intellectual business isn't part of the lay of the land when an official government, so-called neutral entity, does its scientism. I've done econometrics. I know where the I know what people do to get stuff to work. I know the assumptions that one makes. And so to actually get at causality, to actually make economics be like science, like physics or chemistry, where we know an additional dollar of tax revenue, does the following two fill in the blank? That's hard. I mean, yeah, we can sort of do it, but we can't to the extent that the CBO official statements suggest.
1: Portray as, yeah. But, well, I think our colleague, uh, Deirdre McCloskey, would be pulling her hair out right now. The I mean, at the basic proposition that econ is a science... So it, this is, it's interesting as someone in a kind of adjacent field, right? So in history, um, in back, we were humanities, right? But back in the day, oftentimes history departments were in the social sciences uh, departments back in the you know early 20th century, along with econ. So econ and history, sociology were considered scientific fields. And uh, history moved away from that because we recognize that it's not really a science in any meaningful way. I, I think Shapiro touches on this where he says like neutrality, he has two different classes of neutrality he talks about, right? So you have, you can think of neutrality as scientism, that scientist-ish fields like econ and public health are the two examples he uses. You know, it's about bringing expert knowledge to bear on public policy, which is an interesting definition of science because science is not actually defined by expertise. Science is a process. It's, you know, double blind studies and a repeatable, uh, falsifiable process, not actually expertise. I mean, you know, a theologian has expertise in the, you know, in, in theology, but that doesn't mean that it's a scientific that they study God, right? Yeah. Um, so, but there is that sense of like, just follow the science, but we don't really mean science. We mean, listen to people who have Expertise and by expertise, I mean people have degrees from a handful of influential universities and have lots of experience. Which, again, so there's a lot of slippage here, but that's one conception of neutrality. Just let the experts, the economists at OMB, make their rulings, follow, you know, and that's, that's neutrality. Or his other idea of neutrality is not taking a position as an economist at the OMB. And just giving the results that the elected officials want to hear. Because they're the ones who have the democratic mandate. Uh, your job is to um, yep. give them, right. uh, listen to them. In a
0: democracy, room. elected yeah. officials decide and
1: bureaucracies implement. Democracy implement. And so the, these are two, you know, discrete definitions of neutrality that often could come into conflict. And I think Shapiro does a good job kind of noting Yeah, what 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 examples of the conflict between these conceptions come to your mind, Peter? Well,
0: I remember that this BBC show, Yes Minister, which you can catch on reruns, and it's it's about this conflict, which is that the premise of the show is that they don't use the word, but the deep state really runs everything, and then the elected officials are just fools who don't have any influence over anything. Right? In particular, Republican official, Republican elected officials. Often want to uh, end or terminate or reduce government in various ways and re- and end programs. Well, to the extent that programs are run by experts, and then this notion of the bureaucracy as being, uh, in, as in yes, minister, right that that the, the the experts have decided we need food stamps or the earned income tax credit or fill in the blank the large transfer state or the large. Military establishment. And well, I'm elected on a platform of getting rid of that. Then I think the administrative state, the bureaucracy will do resist. What I want. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. yes, minister is the cultural expression of that. But Nixon, right? There was a whole scholarship on Nixon and the administrative presidency, his sense that the bureaucracy was against him. Uh, a scholar named Richard Nathan, that I taught with at Princeton, wrote a book on this. Trump is bringing back all the old Nixon versus the bureaucracy issues. And the Shapiro notion of expertise is kind of a part of, right? It's all wrapped up in this.
1: Well, as a historian, the bit that spoke to me was where he talked about, uh, he started with an observation about the civil service reform movement in the 1880s. And and again, we kind of take for granted a system in which bureaucrats, they might be annoying and they might be slow to do stuff we want them to do, but we kind of think of them as relatively disinterested parties, maybe corruptible parties. And,
0: but and it's hard for current people to realize that was a
1: solution. That was a solution. We wanted them to be, <laughs> be kludgy and not responsive. They were over. They used to be overly responsive, right? Because back in the you know the first half of American history, it's the spoils system. The president wins, and so all the bureaucrats like down to the level of postmaster was a reward for being a faithful party member. Like, you know, the entire bureaucracy would turn over every presidential election cycle. And just the level of, I mean, they call it corruption implies that there's some alternative. But the whole system was, and then those bureaucrats paid assessments to the parties for in exchange for getting the position. So as long as you were the postmaster, whatever, you were supposed to chip in your dues back to the political party, which that was their primary source of campaign funds once upon a time, that persisted for another 50, 60 years in Boston and Chicago and Philly. Um, It's it's funny how much, like, if you're worried about municipal corruption, and and there are still lots of instances of municipal corruption today, but it's so piecemeal compared to even half a century ago. Exactly. I mean... Everything was for sale and now only certain things are. Now for only certain sale. things, yeah. Exactly. And for certain people who have enough, you know, yeah. it's funny to think of this current moment and this debate over uh, you know, I think uh Trump has promised that if he wins, he'll use something called Schedule F powers to turn a bunch of civil service positions that are were, you know, in the eighteen eighties were meant to be these like lifelong, you know, non-political appointees. There's sp- they're supposed to be non-responsive to the turnover at the top. I think 50,000 positions he's promised to turn into kind of at-will, kind of spoil system kinds of positions. So it's interesting we're in this moment where there's an interest, I don't know whether it actually happened, but there's an interest in turning back the clock to kind of uh, a pre-1880s understanding of how the administrative state is supposed to function.
0: A phrase by Yogi Berra comes to mind. It's deja vu all over again. Uh, (laughs) And it's Again, I, I, you and I enjoy talking with each other because even though I'm a analytic policy econ data guy, I have learned over time that whenever I read history, I realize, oh, my God, there's nothing new. We've been wrestling with this stuff forever. The econ part of me, though, says there's an optimal relationship between layperson elected decision making and something called expertise that can inform you that, oh, you may want this and you were elected to do this, but it's going to F everything up in ways you have no idea and you shouldn't do this, right? I mean, so an article in the Spring Issue Regulation, uh, we haven't talked about, an author named Judge Glock wrote an article, he's not a judge, that's his name. That's just his name. name. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's not honorific. He wrote an article on And it was just fascinating to me on the origins of so-called independent commissions, right? The FTC and the ICC, these, again, bureaucracies. And we now think of them as involving something called expertise, right? We think of the, and he argues the origins were not at all about that. And it was, um, what I did not know is railroad, again, industrialization and then railroads and railroad rates, it turns out under common law Juries were impaneled all the time under common law to fuss about railroad rates. And that just led to great uncertainty for railroads, right? You never, I mean, how do we know what prices are going to be?
1: So they actually welcomed having a commission that would routinize the process. And And it wasn't that
0: the commissions would be expert. No. It was experienced. It was simply that they would. They would Rather deal expert. with yeah. railroad rates across a whole series of cases so they weren't always doing random stuff that juries would do and I said, oh and then progressives turned those com- ra- original railroad commissions into into technocratic yes, like that, that administration that was state. not
1: the yeah. origins and that's interesting. And
0: then as a libertarian, again, where I, I like common law and I sort of like juries. And then, again, this notion that the people have a, a good sense about them, but having them rule under common law and railroad rates, I guess, from this article, just messed everything up from a management pricing
1: standpoint. I'm not the most quantitatively inclined kind of guy, right? I tell stories as a historian. And so this gets down to the realm of the squishy and the squishy here is that uh, culture matters. And so I was struck by, it, it's you, you can't, you know, it's hard to guard rail culture. It's hard to make culture do things. Culture is usually invisible. It's often, you know, um, well, symbols. I would, and I would,
0: even though I believe in it, I'm very ambivalent about how does one measure it's what, very what does hard it to mean measure. to measure? even
1: though Or I... hard to change or hard to channel or that, you know, Shapiro goes and he interviews these folks and kind of assesses the internal culture of Correct. these groups of economists there. Correct. And, but I wouldn't dismiss that. That has real value. I agree. Because a lot of this, you know, adjudicating the proper balance of responsiveness versus expertise uh, in our definition of neutrality comes down to something that kind of has to be created on the fly Ideally, by people with firm sets of principles and the commitment to kind of the best of both worlds. And you can't formalize that. You can try. I mean, you can create regulations that mandate neutrality, but that's not actually going to get you what you're looking for necessarily. So it matters that these economists think of themselves as nonpartisan. They think of themselves as kind of not taking – as being fair and objective to the questions they're studying even if they have points of view, the fact that they're trying to be neutral, it it matters as much as whether they actually are neutral or not, in in a sense.
0: We haven't used the term state of the art, right? So if if in economics, what we know changes over time, and then, oh, yeah, we would have done it this way back then. But now, a good professional would not use that kind of model to come up with that answer because of this article and this article and this article said the econometrics are BS. Believe it or not, I mean, there are articles in the AER, and and I talked to my colleagues about them, which argue that the Fed in the 70s, you know, again, too much or too little money growth, and, and was it political, and did Nixon get the Fed to try to win real and all that stuff is a more benign i mean an example that i have read in a journal article is that the models of the time were insufficiently aware of supply constraints and the they thought the money supply increases they were um, approving of at the time according to their models it's not that they wanted to impose inflation on them. It just, they were surprised that it happened and their mar- their models were inappropriate and inaccurate. And they thought they could do what they did and recommended what they did because the models told them and they did not understand that the models were in fact wrong. And that's a more benign view than, but notice they had this the, the, the Shapiro, they had the notions then of trying to do it right but in real time, uh, doing it right within a scientific enterprise, one can be wrong, and not, and and then updating over time, you were like, oh, we don't do that anymore. But we we really thought this was the way to do it at the time. So again, the when lay people criticize expertise, sometimes the lay people are right. See what I? They are. It's not just a values fight. It's literally their intuition about what they're seeing out there. For example, the recent bout of inflation we had, right? Sort of pe- people knew it before the Fed knew it. Yeah, before they admitted be- it. Yeah, because
1: yeah, yeah. Yeah. you can see it. You're in touch. You, s- you go to the grocery store. Well, it's kind of a classic, you know, I mean, as libertarians, we love talking about the the problems with central, you know, with command economies, central management, the knowledge problem, Hayek, and this is kind of a classic version that the crowd sourced information, if you will, the the crowd wisdom that there's inflation going on, um, even if the central, you know, uh uh data gatherers, in this case, you know, I guess the economists at whatever organization, they don't see it yet because they're still gathering data or because it doesn't fit their model. Um, yeah, I mean, so there's kind of a libertarian point there. And so so I guess the importance then is to not create a closed epistemic model that mm-hmm. that you don't want to give. Um, so there's maybe some utility in giving them the ability and the freedom to generate models, that generate estimates, and so on, but you don't want to completely close them off from outside information and from, or from, you know, I guess dissent or from some sort of public check. Like full technocratic management here would, would have been a disaster, arguably.
0: It's always. A disaster, but you may not know it. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is again, where we started out talking about optimal hypocrisy, and now it's optimal dissent. How do you know? So reform, scientific understanding comes from dissent, comes from the wackos. But sorting the wackos into the wackos, you'll eventually come around to believe we're right, versus the large number of wackos that were in fact just wrong, <laughs> doing that in real time, it's wow. type one and type two errors. That's my story on life. And you don't know which error is worse until it happens. And then,
1: you know, when it came, for example, to COVID, to the pandemic, how do we respond to the pandemic? Well, the public health experts, and they are experts in public health, they using their expertise, made a series of recommendations, some of which we now know were very wrong. Like, don't mask. We were told not to mask for three quarters of a year. That was the wrong recommendation. But I think, you know, in some cases, that was a recommendation made in good faith based on expertise and experience with past pandemics. We think, we think it was wrong. So,
0: well, we, the real-world clinical trials on masks... Right. Have been
1: relatively more less significant results. Yes, than we because thought, right?
0: in the real world, real mask wearing isn't very good. If we could, you, l- 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 and then there's laboratory use of masks with volatile uh, uh, particles and, and lasers showing if people really did this the way they should, and we could implement that perfectly in the real world, mask wearing or the right kind of mask would reduce the transmission of droplets in ways that would have to reduce infection, right? Notice both are true, Yeah. which is more just, relevant.
1: Right, right. It, it well, might but be. <laughs> in the kind of, but there was a whiplash uh, from the you know public health recommendations on masking from, Normal normal people Correct. shouldn't mask at all. In fact, it's bad to mask. In fact, because Act- of their understanding of droplets, and at the yeah, time was and, and so on. It, Two, everyone should mask constantly, right? And, and <laughs> you know, so it's so there. There's somewhere in the middle is the truth, right? And uh, the the gradations. So, but that was based on expertise. They got it wrong, and then maybe they got it more right, or maybe not. But we can argue about all that. But as the economists point out, and Shapiro points out, there's no cost-benefit analysis here. Like what's the economic cost of various shutdown measures? Public health does measures? not like econ cost-benefit. Yeah, cost but I'm also struck by, yet again, by the limits. So the expertise we're talking about here is all economics. But an economist can tell you a certain kind of cost or benefit, but not about what costs people are willing to bear and what benefits people really want in light of those costs. So... You know, does increasing, does a lockdown measure that decreases uh, the spread of COVID by X amount, the economist comes along and says that X amount costs this much financially. But that still doesn't tell you whether you should do it or not, which is a matter of ethics, of preferences, of... Well, in particular, what economics...
0: So we can talk about the cost per life saved of a public health measure if... Implemented in such a way that it's blah percent effective, right? We could we right. could come up with that.
1: You come with, a and number. then we yeah.
0: and then we could say we now use the ten million dollar per life saved as a kind of threshold. Things that cost more than that are quote not cost effective. Things below that are cost effective and should be implemented. Right, but then even there's a footnote. That, then there's a footnote yeah. which is this does not count any of the things that aren't priced i.e. freedom or yeah, right, right. no, I mean I mean yeah, I'm no, yeah. at, at things because the, the right to be stubborn or the right to to go on a motorcycle without a helmet. The, now a public health person would say, that's kind of stupid. My wife as a, was an ER nurse and <clears throat> Connecticut at the time didn't have a helmet law. And at intersections.
1: Oh, and at man.
0: intersections, she would hand out her her uh business card <laughs> to motorcyclists without helmet and it. say, You're gonna see me and you're not gonna have a spine that works, and you're not gonna be you're gonna be on a ventilator and you're gonna blah 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 blah. Okay, but then people s- is it worth it to be stupid and not follow?
1: expertise right? or is it worth it to be the kind of society that allows such yes people to make stupid decisions which is a whole other layer of for yeah, many so people there's, there's an obvious yeah.
0: answer but for libertarians it's it's yeah. uh,
1: uh, i think the phrase peter was reaching for is it's complicated which really could be the catchphrase of our show but I find that the complicated questions are often the most interesting ones as well. If you're still listening, then you probably think so too. And if you enjoyed this conversation, it's just the tip of the iceberg for what's in the latest issue of Regulation Magazine, which you can read for free online at cato.org regulation. Thank you the Landry for producing the pod. And as always, until next time, be well.